0: Christians pray. Because of our new nature in Christ, Christians naturally pray. That isn't to say there aren't challenges to prayer, distractions within and without, the fleshly opposition of our indwelling sin to prayer, or the distractions of the world that impede us are very real, and I'm not making light of those, but Christians pray. And fundamentally, this is because the Christian life is a life of faith. Christians are people who are marked by dependence, as we've been singing about even this morning. We are those who trust in God. We look to God. We walk. We live by faith. And not by sight. And the language of faith is prayer. Prayer in the heart leads to, let me rephrase that, faith in the heart leads to prayer on the lips. Christians pray. And yet again, we need help to pray. We need teaching, instruction on how to approach this delightful duty of prayer. If you were with us this past January, Brett walked us through the disciples' prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. In that passage, Jesus gives us a perfect pattern to follow for how we should pray, if you weren't here, you didn't get a chance to listen to that series. I would highly encourage you to, to go back and listen to that series instructing us on how we should pray. But in an effort to further inform our prayer life, uh, whenever the, the staff and the elders preach this year, throughout the year, we will be preaching on specific kinds of prayer and specific prayers that we find in the Bible like the one here in Philippians chapter one. We're jumping into this first prayer here and it could be categorized under the heading of intercession or intercessory prayer. Perhaps that's something you've heard before in maybe not so helpful ways, maybe in helpful ways, or or maybe it's something new to you. But intercessory prayer at its fundamental Level is simply praying for someone else. That's all intercessory prayer is. It's you praying on behalf of someone else. And in this series that we're going to be working through, we're going to look at a number of intercessory prayers throughout Paul's letters. We'll consider a few examples, some in Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, and this morning in Philippians, where Paul simply prays for his readers he intercedes to God on their behalf this is intercession it is praying pleading with God on behalf of someone else now we know that we should do this and I think as a church we regularly do do this we are regularly almost constantly praying for one another we corporately how many times have we prayed together this morning for each other? Interceding for each other. Also, I are singing together. Were you interceding for someone else? Thinking on the lyrics that we were singing, the truths that we were singing, were you praying, God, would this be true of those sitting around me, my brothers and sisters in Christ? This act of congregational singing, we're instructing each other, but we're also at times often praying for one another in song. If you come on Sunday nights, we spend time praying for each other. We spend time praying for other churches, for the government, for other people, we intercede all the time. If you go to growth group, you probably spend time praying for one another. Your Ironman group, you pray for one another. Your Titus 2 group, you pray for one another. You have a conversation sometime around this morning, the gathering this morning, and you pray for one another. You say you're going to pray for one another. I know many of you have a, have a, a habit of, of just systematically praying through the church directory, praying for other members In the church. I I think we actually do quite a lot of praying for one another. And we can and and certainly should do more. But the question I want us to consider this morning and that we'll look at a, a number of times again in this series in these other passages as well is how should we pray for one another? How should we go about this act of Interceding for each other. How should we pray for one another? Specifically, in the body of Christ, in the local church here at Summit Woods, how should we pray for one another? How do the scriptures inform our prayers for each other? Because they should. Specifically, this morning, how does Philippians 1, 9 through 11, inform and teach us about how we should be praying for each other. So this morning, Philippians 1, 9 through 11 will instruct us in two essentials for praying for one another. Two essentials for praying for one another. These two things are the the foundation of intercession, the bread and butter for how we should be praying for each other when you pick up that, that beefy new membership directory that we have on the, you know, it's bigger paper and there's more of you, so it's bigger than ever, how should you pray for each other? When you go to growth group this afternoon, how should you pray for each other? What are the essentials of praying for one another? Well, the first essential of praying for one another is pray for exponential love. Pray for exponential love. We're going to see this in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 1. Pray for exponential love. Look at verse 9 again. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. This verse is highlighting the, the content of our prayers for one another. This is what we should pray for each other. Yes, we we, we can and we should pray for you know Aunt Sally's broken hip or, or our jobs or our homes or trials, sicknesses, things that we're going through that we're dealing with. but the more essential thing that we, Pray, and the thing that undergirds and should flavor even those other practical requests is this prayer for exponential love. We should pray for one another that we will love more and more. The word here for love is a common New Testament word, and if you've been around the church for any period of time, you've likely heard of the word agape. That's this word here in Philippians 1 and 9. It is that self-giving, self-sacrificing, selfless love. It's the opposite of selfishness. Love, as one commentator says it, is placing a high value on another person. It's placing a high value on another person. And of course, Jesus' death on the cross is the supreme example of this kind of love. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The apostle John also defines love by the substitutionary wrath-bearing death of Jesus. In 1 John 9 and 10, he says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation the wrath-bearing substitute for our sins. This kind of selfless sacrifice for the spiritual well-being of someone else is true love. This kind of love finds its genesis in the character of God and his love for us. We only love because he first loved us and yet we are instructed that we are to love God and that we are to love one another. This is how Jesus summarized our duty when he was questioned by a scribe in Matthew 22:36. The scribe asked, "Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law?" And Jesus said to him, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind." This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. This love for God is its an inclination of our being toward God and away from self. It's to regard God highly, highly. And affectionately. It's to value Him supremely so that we obey Him unswervingly. It's to be devoted to Him entirely so that we cling to Him and His Word faithfully. And this really also highlights the heart of all of our problems. Our problem is sin. Primarily, our sin is our greatest problem. Your sin is your greatest problem. My sin is my greatest problem. Secondarily, we also have to deal with the sins of others, fellow sinners sinning against us. But our problems are not fundamentally a, a lack of job or a bad job or not enough money or an unloving spouse or rebellious kids or the car that keeps breaking down or the chronic health problems. Those may, those may be the fruit of even our own sin at times. Maybe they're the fruit of somebody else's sin against us. Sometimes it's neither of those and it's simply the providence of God in our lives. But the fundamental problem that we always have to deal with is sin. Our own sin, even when people sin against us, our greatest concern is, how am I responding? Am I responding in a sinful way? What about this providential circumstance that I didn't bring about, I didn't cause this, nobody else is even sinning against me, this is just a hardship, how should I respond? It's an issue of sin. And sin is always a lack of love. Sin is always a lack of love. We sin because we do not love God as we should. We sin because we don't love God as we should. Consider, why do you lust? Why do you lust? Because you love yourself. Because you value yourself, not God. Because you want to be worshipped. Because you want the satisfaction of being the object of another person's praise. And you view other people as objects for your own praise and satisfaction. It's because you don't value God and his praise more than yourself and your praise. Consider anger. Why are we angry? Because you do not rightly value God because you don't love God as you should, because you think everyone else should always and only do everything you want. And when they don't, watch out. Everything in life should always go your way, and any time it doesn't, you're angry. But a supreme affection for God is the opposite. If we deeply Love God, we see our role as pointing others to do things God's way, not trying to have everybody else do every little thing our way. So we aren't angry when our will is violated. Instead, we are even righteously angry when God's will is violated. And love of God values His providence over every inch. Of our lives in every circumstance because He is the supreme, all-wise, all-knowing being and we know that we are not. So when circumstances come our way that are displeasing to us that would make us angry, if we supremely value God, we recognize even in those circumstances, God is to be praised. I should be content. God knows what He's doing. This is why we pray For one another's love and affection for God because if we love God we will hate sin if we have a growing affection for God our desires for sin will shrink to be clear there there is no object of love expressed here in Philippians 1.9 he doesn't say and I pray that your love for God or your love of one another will abound he doesn't explicitly specify what he's praying about here, but I think the context, as we're going to see, is primarily signaling a growing love for the Lord. But don't be mistaken. You can't divorce loving God from loving one another. A growing love for God will necessarily grow our love for one another. If we love God, we're going to love people made in his image if i tell you i love i love dan vansickle if, if i tell you that but then you come over to my house and you go down in my basement and on my wall there's this big picture of dan and there's all kinds of scribbles all over it and we're using it as a dartboard you be like you don't You don't do that to somebody you love. You're not going to do that to somebody's picture if you love them. You're not going to do that to a picture of your spouse. How do we treat God's pictures? People made in God's image. we love God, we're going to love his children who are made in his image, even especially our fellow believers who are being renewed more and more into the image of his son, who were knit together with as fellow members in the body of Christ. But Paul here, he doesn't just pray that they would simply get this kind of love as if they don't. Have it or they're somehow lacking in love, and so this prayer is kind of like an underhanded rebuke. No, that's not what he's doing here. He prays that the love they have would abound. It would grow. He prays that it would grow and overflow and increase in ongoing ways. He's praying for a continual, exponential growth in affection. He's praying that it would continually increase more and more. This is actually the only time in the New Testament those two more and more. That phrase is used, it's only used here. He's praying that their love would grow and greater and greater and abound more and more and higher and higher degrees of love and affection. That's why I described it as, as exponential, exponential. Not simply a, a plotting kind of growth, but an exponential growth. It's not a snail's pace that he's praying for. He's not praying in small ways here. It's an overflowing, abounding, rapidly growing love. In the words of one commentator, Paul uses an accumulation of words to denote superabundance. A super abundance of love is what he's praying for. That's what we should pray for each other. A super abundance of affection. But Paul qualifies and and, and specifies the sphere of this love. What is the domain of love that he wants it to abound within? It's a love that is abounding more and more, he specifies, in real knowledge and all discernment. Now the word for real knowledge, epignosis, is it's relational, intimate knowledge of a person based on a precise and correct knowledge of the person. It's an intimate knowledge based on a precise and correct knowledge of the person it's this deep relationship because you rightly know who this person is and you love them because of who they are it's most often used in the new testament and especially in the captivity epistles to speak of a knowledge of god or jesus christ a deep relational intimate knowledge of god based on a correct understanding of who he is In Ephesians 1.17, this word is used to speak of knowledge of the Father. Ephesians 4.13, it's the knowledge of the Son of God. Colossians 1.9, it's the knowledge of His will. Colossians 1.10, it's the knowledge of God. Colossians 2.2, it's the knowledge of God's mystery. Paul has something very specific in mind when he's talking about real knowledge here and love growing within this sphere of this true knowledge of God. This leads one Greek scholar to conclude. He says, usually epignosis is closely connected with the knowledge of Christ and conformity to his likeness, which in turn is the substance of God's self-revelation. More at length, another commentator, he says, Paul's view of knowledge was largely determined by the Old Testament. To know God meant to be in a close personal relationship with him because he had made himself known. There was the element of an obedient and grateful acknowledgement of his deeds on behalf of his people. The knowledge of God began with a fear of him, was linked with his demands, and often was described as knowing his will. In the Old Testament, as well as in the writings of Paul, knowledge was not a fixed quantum, but rather something that developed in the life of people as they were obedient. At Philippians 1.9, epigenosis, he says, has neither a definite article nor an object, but it is to be understood in the comprehensive sense of knowing God through Christ in an intimate way. So this prayer for exponential love in the sphere of knowledge, it's a prayer for a growing love in the context of a deep, intimate Relationship based on a correct and biblical understanding and knowledge of God. It's a prayer that people would grow in their affection for God based on a biblical and personal knowledge of God. People, people all over the world in all kinds of churches claim to know and love God. But the God that they claim to know and love is defined by them. They may claim it's a personal relationship with God, but what God? What God? Who determines, who defines who that God is? What God do they actually know? Is it a God of their own making after their own likeness? People say things like, Well, my God would never want me to be unhappy, so he's okay with my sinful sexual choices. My Jesus wouldn't send people to hell. Well, then your God is not God, and your Jesus is not Jesus. This is idolatry. It's loving a God who is no God at all, but is rather a reflection of one's self. We don't want affection divorced from a proper understanding of who God actually is. Otherwise, it's simply idolatry. Nor do we want knowledge of God separated from affection for God. This is simply intellectualism. But most of the time when, when love is spoken of, even a love of God and a love of each other, it's, it's spoken of and encouraged in our culture and even in churches. What's meant is unquestioning affirmation. Oh, no, that church is a loving church because they're an affirming church. Affirm me and my choices. That's love. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Don't pry into my life. Don't try to understand who I am. Don't try to help me with my problems. Don't say what I'm doing is sin. That's, that's unloving. But would a doctor be very loving if he always told everyone that they were perfectly healthy? Don't change anything. Don't, don't take any medicine. Don't treat the disease that's eating away at your body. It's not a loving doctor, but that's what unquestioning affirmation does to the souls of people. We should pray for a love that grows out of a true knowledge of God, not love in a blanket affirmation kind of way. We pray for one another to to love the true God God More And this qualifier in in verse 9 here, this abounding love in true knowledge, it's really a guardrail that keeps us from going down this road of blanket affirmation or the road of idolatry. Our prayer then is that we would love the true God because we know him and know him truly as he has revealed himself in his word. So pray for one another. Pray for one another that as we encounter God in His Word, that He is loved more and more for who He truly is as He has revealed Himself in His Word. Pray that hearts would be inclined towards the God of the Bible, not a God of our own making. Pray that we would not love our version of God. Pray that we would selflessly pursue God and value Jesus more than anything else. But there's another qualifier here in verse 9. He prays that their love would abound in real knowledge and all discernment. Discernment is a really good translation here. The word means perceiving, knowing, judging between what is right and wrong, what is moral and what is immoral. So a growing affection for God in the sphere of discernment, it it tunes our heart to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. That's what we're praying for when we pray in this way. That's what we pray for each other. An ever-increasing affection for God that deepens and increases as the true God is known through his word and that as God is known, our ability to discern right from wrong and our inclination toward what is right and away from what is wrong grows. That's what we pray for one another. What would this look like? What what would this look like if this were lived out in the congregation, this kind of love? Well, I think Paul spends some significant time spelling that out in the rest of this letter. Look down at verse 12 of chapter one. He says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord... Because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment what then only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth or in truth Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice that's what love looks like bold courageous fearless proclamation of the gospel that's what love looks like or look down to verse 27 of chapter 1 He instructs them, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any, any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's what love looks like. That's what a loving congregation looks like. We stand firm, united together on the truth of the gospel, striving side by side, suffering together. Not doing anything out of selfish ambition, but in humility, seeking to serve one another. Because that's the example of Christ, he goes on to say in the rest of Philippians 2. And then at the end of the book, another example of this kind of love, what this looks like in practical, tangible ways in the congregation. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. He says, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Love looks like sacrificial, abundant giving, supplying for the needs of others because you love God and others more than you love your own money. We pray for this kind of love. This is how we should pray for each other is that we would have this kind of love and affection for God. Now this leads to a, a bigger picture question. Why, why should we pray for exponential love and affection for God for one another? Why should we pray that for each other? What's the purpose of of intercession. Uh, That's the second essential for praying for one another. Secondly, pray for the glory of God. Pray for the glory of God. Now, my point kind of gives away something here. The ultimate purpose that we read and even saw at the end of verse 11 is that God is glorified. You see where we're going. You see where this prayer goes. But, But Before we get to verse 11, there's a series of building purposes that lead to that ultimate purpose. There are intermediate purposes, if you will, to this ultimate purpose of praying for the glory of God. So what are are those intermediate purposes that, that build to that ultimate purpose? Well, first, I call this an inclination toward what is supreme. An inclination toward what is supreme. It's not on the slides, you're gonna to have to write it down. It's okay. It's an inclination toward what is supreme. Look at verse 10. He says in verse nine, I, I pray this, that your love may abound. Why? Why? So that you may approve the things that are excellent so that you may approve the things that are excellent. The word for approve here is to draw a conclusion about worth. It is to deem worthy. In the ancient world, this was used to describe money that was approved after being tested by the standard, by the proof it was approved. It was worthy of its value. It was genuine. You think about if, if you're trying to discern whether this hundred dollar bill is counterfeit, and you have another one that you know is true and real, and it's you compare the the fake one or the the questionable one. You, you test it. You compare it with another hundred dollar bill that is true. Now, if it's counterfeit, it's worthless. It, it has no. Value, but if it is approved, it is worth a hundred dollars or, you know, a tank of gas in our current day. <laughs> Paul here prays for an exponential love so that they would deem as worthy what is excellent. That which is truly superior, that which is more advantageous, that which is truly excellent. So if this prayer is coming to fruition in the example, you would see if you have a fake hundred dollar bill and a real one, you choose the real one because you approve what's excellent. You know what's superior. You know what is actually worthy, what actually has worth. Worth. So you are inclined towards what is truly superior. You want what is actually best. You choose that which is truly excellent. So you, so you don't, you don't look at the pornography because you want to see Jesus because He's actually better. You don't love money because Jesus is better. You don't believe the lies of sin and temptation and instead you believe God and what he has for you because it's actually better for you. It is superior for you. It is more satisfying for your soul. This was Moses' As Hebrews 11 describes him, starting in verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill-treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. This is how we are to live our lives. This is how we are to pray for each other, that we would have this kind of inclination and affection towards God, that we would truly value what is truly superior. This is what Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish pastor from over 200 years ago, what he called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. In a sermon he preached with that title, he said, Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of and which if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. We can't replace our love for sin with nothing. It has to be forced out of us by a higher affection a greater love a deeper desire now he goes on here I want to quote him at length bear with me he says the love of God and the love of the world are two affections not merely in a state of rivalship but in a state of enmity and that's so irreconcilable that they cannot dwell together in the same bosom We have already affirmed how impossible it were for the heart by any innate elasticity of its own to cast the world away from it and thus reduce itself to a wilderness. The heart is not so constituted and the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Nothing can exceed the magnitude of the required change in a man's character when bidden as he is in the New Testament to love not the world, no, nor any of the things that are in the world, for this so comprehends all that is dear to him in existence as to be equivalent to a command of self-annihilation. But the same revelation which dictates so mighty and obedient places within our reach As mighty an instrument of obedience, it brings for admittance to the very door of our heart an affection which, once seated upon its throne, will either subordinate every previous inmate or bid it away. Beside the world, it places before the eye of the mind Him, Who made the world and with this peculiarity which is all its own that in the gospel do we so behold God as that we may love God. It is there and only there where God stands revealed as an object of confidence to sinners and where our desire after him is not chilled into apathy by that barrier of human guilt which intercepts every approach that is not made to him through the appointed mediator. Are you tracking with him? You can't get rid of sin and your love for sin without a love for God. And you can't love God apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, which makes God beautiful to behold in the eyes of a sinner by faith. He goes on, he says, It is the bringing in of this better hope whereby we draw nigh unto God. And to live without hope is to live without God. And if the heart be without God, then world will then have all the ascendancy. It is God apprehended by the believer as God in Christ who alone can dispost it from this ascendancy. It is when he stands dismantled of the terrors which belong to him as an offended lawgiver and when we are enabled by faith which is his own gift to see his glory. In the face of Jesus Christ and to hear his beseeching voice as it protests goodwill to men and entreats the return of all who will to a full pardon and a gracious acceptance. It is then that a love paramount to the love of the world and at length expulsive of it first arises in the regenerated heart. It is when released from the spirit of bondage with which love cannot dwell and when admitted into the number of God's children through the faith that is in Christ Jesus, the spirit of adoption is poured upon us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires in the only way in which deliverance is possible. And that faith which is revealed to us from heaven as indispensable to a sinner's justification in the sight of God, is also the instrument of the greatest of all moral and spiritual achievements on a nature dead to the influence and beyond the reach of every other application. You won't hate your sin if you don't love God. Paul exemplifies this even later in Philippians, look at Philippians chapter three, verse seven. He says, "But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ." in the power of his resurrection. In the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Nothing matters when compared to Jesus. Everything is lost compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Our love for sin and the things of this world will never be removed unless they are replaced. That's why we pray this way. That's why we pray for exponential love for one another. So we approve what is really worthy. So we're inclined toward what is truly superior. So our love for sin is driven out and replaced with a love for God. And this Inclination toward what is supreme leads to another intermediate purpose, namely a pure perseverance. A pure perseverance. We pray for exponential love so that we may approve the things that are excellent. Why? What's the next step? What's the next block? In order to be Sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That word until here denotes an an extension in time. It's up to which point something continues, namely being pure and blameless, he says. So approving the things that are excellent or an inclination toward what is supreme leads to a sincere or pure and blameless way of life that perseveres to the end. An inclination towards what is supreme, the expulsive power of an affection for God is necessary for perseverance so we're not drawn away and enticed and walk away from our first love. Love. It's necessary for persevering in living in a pure and blameless way. This is a way of life that is without hidden motives or pretense. It's pure, it's sincere, it's wholly devoted to God, it's undefiled. It's also blameless, he says. It's not a way of life that is stumbling or that gives offense. There's no offense that sticks to this kind of life. What's rather interesting here is that If you look back up at verse 6 in chapter 1 Paul says this is already going to happen. He knows this is going to happen. This kind of perseverance to the end in chapter 1 verse 6 he says I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. God's going to do this. He knows God is going to do this in them and yet he prays it for them. That should instruct us. And not only that he prays it for them and then he tells them to do it. <laughs> he knows it's going to happen. He prays for them to do it and he tells them they actually need to do it. Look at Philippians chapter 2 verse starting in verse 12. He calls them to this here in chapter 2 verse 12. He says, "So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling." For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So he knows it's gonna happen. He prays for it to happen and then they make it happen. They do it. If we're to persevere until the day of Christ in purity and blamelessness, we must have an inclination toward what is supreme so that we don't stumble over what is not supreme. And so we are confident God will do it. We pray for it. We pray for it for each other. And that's actually the means that God uses to keep us. We need to pray this for one another. So that we don't walk away. So that we persevere. That's where Paul goes even following that section. Talking about the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He talks about his own pursuit of this. In chapter 3 verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. So in that final day, in the day of Christ, it will then be our testimony that we have been filled with the fruit of righteousness, he says back in Philippians 1.10. That righteousness which comes, he specifies, through Jesus Christ. When we live this way, we persevere this way, we actually do what is right in the eyes of God. We actually have acts of righteousness that Jesus creates in us necessarily. If we have an abounding love for God that leads to approving the things that are excellent so that we persevere in purity and blamelessness, we are actually going to do good and righteous deeds. Practical righteousness is the result of affection for God. We we cannot love Jesus and not keep his commandments. If we love him, we will obey him. And yet this is all Through him, he says. It's ultimately the work of Jesus through us to create righteousness in us. You you heard that in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, didn't you? You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is working that in you. Because God is creating that and working that in and through you. What God works is our works. Commenting on Philippians two twelve and 13, John Piper, he says, Paul says to fight your sin with fear and trembling because God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, redeemer, justifier, sustainer, father, lover, is so close to you that your working and willing are his working and willing. Tremble at this breathtaking thought. God Almighty is in you. God is the one in you willing. God is the one in you working. Your continuous, sustained, strenuous effort is not only being carried out in the presence of God, but is the very work of God himself. God is at work in you. And what he is working is your working. Therefore, we are not waiting for a miracle. We are acting a miracle this is how we persevere this is how God preserves us is through our own perseverance in short John Owen he notes we cannot perform our duty without the grace of God nor does God give his grace for any other purpose than that we may perform our duty so being filled with the fruit of righteousness, bearing the fruit of practical righteousness actually in an ongoing way up until the day of Christ so that we are filled with the fruit of righteousness means living lives of righteousness through Jesus Christ as he works in us. And all of, all of this is toward that ultimate end of God being glorified. We pray all of this to that ultimate end, the glory of God. We pray for one another that we might have an exponential love in all knowledge and discernment so that we might approve the things that are excellent so that we might persevere in purity and blamelessness, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, all to the glory of God. That's what we're praying for is the glory of God. This is how the answer to this prayer is how God's purposes are fulfilled in the church. This is why we exist. The church is the vehicle of God's glory. This is highlighted in in Paul's prayer to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter three, verse 20, he says at the end of, of that prayer there, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The local church is the body of Christ. We are his representatives here on the earth. We collectively are indwelt by his spirit to display him to the world so that he's glorified in and through us. We exist for the glory of God. So we pray In this way, for the glory of God, for His honor, for His admiration, for His approval, for His recognition, for His fame. Don't you see how all of this, all of these things that we're praying for one another are supremely glorifying to God? When we're faced with temptation and we want to sin, we're enticed by sin. It is glorifying to God when although we, we want that, we in our sin may want that sin. We want God more. We have a deeper inclination that leads us to obedience, to choose what is right because we actually believe God, that He is superior. That is glorifying to God. So if we want the glory of God, if we truly want God to be glorified, what should you do? Pray this for each other. Pray in this way for each other. And if we start praying in this way for one another, there's going to be this compounding effect within the body It's going to compound on itself because a prayer for love leads to love, which leads to more prayer for more love. Paul's prayer for the Philippians here in verses 9 through 11 is connected with his affection and love for the Philippians. That's why there's an and at the beginning of verse 9. You thought I was skipping that word. We're gonna get it. That's why there's an and here. Look back at verse eight. He says, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus and this I pray. I I have this affection for you. It's the very affection of Christ. So I pray in this way. So Paul's love for them led to him praying For their love. So if their love is growing, they will in turn pray like he prayed here. John MacArthur saw this connection in his commentary on Philippians 1 9. He says, Prayer is much more than a duty, prayer is a compulsion for the spiritually mature Christian. Fervent prayer does not arise from a mere sense of duty, but from a deep inner desire. It does not flow from external requirement, but from internal passion. The deepest longings of the spirit-filled heart for the honor of God and the blessing of men find their natural expression in prayer. The measure of a person's spiritual maturity is not how well he or she conforms externally to the command to pray. The issue is how internally constrained that person is to pray by a strong love for God and others. He says, the truest longings of the heart will come out in prayer. A selfish and superficial heart focused primarily on personal problems, struggles, and interests will produce selfish and superficial prayers. A heart focused on the glory of the Lord and his people will produce prayers focused on God's glory and others' needs. A strong sense of duty cannot compensate for a cold heart or produce fervent prayer. We need to love this way. And if we're going to love this way, we need to pray for each other in this way. And as we pray for each other in this way, we'll love in this way. God accomplishes this work in us through our prayers for one another, for exponential love and for God's glory. This is how we should pray for each other. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would be glorified in us. We pray that we would accurately reflect your character. We pray that we would love you in an abounding and overflowing way. That we would have such an affection for you that our eyes are turned towards you. That we would see you as better that we would see your will for us as superior. We pray that we would live lives of holiness and perseverance and purity. Lord, we want you to be glorified. We want your glory. So we pray that you would be glorified in us. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.